This is exactly right. This story contains adult content and language, along with references to sexual assault. Listener discretion is advised. He starts praying that God take care of this, fix this for me. And after a period of time, God has it fixed it. So he said, well, if God's not going to help me, I'm going to reach out to Satan. I'm Kate Winkler Dawson, a nonfiction author and journalism professor in Austin, Texas. I'm also the host of the historical true crime podcast, Tenfold More Wicked, and the co-host of the podcast, Buried Bones on Exactly Right. I've traveled around the world interviewing people for the show, and they are all excellent writers. They've had so many great true crime stories, and now we want to tell you those stories with details that have never been published. Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words is about the choices that writers make, good and bad. It's a deep dive into the stories behind the stories. Best-selling author and my buddy, Brian Burrow, returns to his small-town Texas roots in the podcast by Texas Monthly called Stephenville. This season, he explores a murder case that went cold for nearly two decades. To tell this amazing story, Brian is armed with the newly discovered diary of the killer himself. A trigger warning here, we do talk about a serial rapist and killer. Let's dip into how you came across with the story, and then we can move from there. I had all but retired from any type of magazine journalism. Um, The economics of it aren't as compelling as they used to be. I'm 61 and not looking for as much work uh, outside books as I used to be. Uh, But I got an email from a TV producer on Forensic Files. We did a uh, show on a cold case killing in Stephenville, Texas, uh, a few years back, and the lead detective found something new, found that the bad guy left behind a 200-page autobiographical essay that, for the first time, told the story of fairly well-known events from his point of view. He had spent his entire life denying it all. And this was a fairly uh, run-of-the-mill bad guy who wrote kind of an extraordinary document that traced the development of his internal angers, um, passions, sexual proclivities from the age of eight through early teen, through his 20s into adulthood, as well as dealing with the stories of the crimes that he committed. So I thought, gosh, we've got a very different take on the story. So set the scene. Where are we when this story starts? Well, it starts with murder. And that's kind of the best way to, to introduce the cast of characters. In July 1987, uh, in Stephenville, Texas, which is southwest, 70 miles southwest of Fort Worth, supervisor at a sandpaper called a, a man in town and said, your daughter has not showed up for work two days in a row. And his name was Joe Atkins. And Joe went on over to his daughter's little white bungalow, a little rented white bungalow there in the older area of Stephenville. Walked up to the front door, found it ajar, went in and found his daughter, Susan Woods, naked on the floor of the bathroom with her upper body plunged into a tub full of black water. How long had she been in the bathtub? Two days. Oh, my gosh. Last scene on a Sunday night, they found her on a Tuesday night. Susan Woods, in the summer of 1987, was a very quiet young woman, a factory worker, who had grown up in Stephenville, quiet as a child, didn't date, close to her parents, 
Uh, everybody said, you know, she was just the sweetest thing, just nice to everybody, a little trusting, a little naive. Graduated from Stephenville High with honors. And within a year or two, having at that point gone to work for a nursing home, she met a young man, a newcomer to town named Michael Woods. And Michael came from El Paso. This was the late 70s. You know, Susan was 5'7", long brown hair. Uh, Michael was a little shorter, but very attractive, uh, certainly to Susan. And the most notable thing about Michael was at a time when rural Texas was not only as conservative as it may be today, but it was kind of pushing back against the excesses of the 60s. Michael had long hair and he was a musician. He stood out in town. Stephenville, keep in mind, is bills itself as the cowboy capital of the world. It is a town then and now where, you know, cowboy hats, FFA jackets, close crop hair are most common. And Michael Woods stood out. Michael was actually just visiting, uh, kind of hanging around, unemployed, as he tended to be most of the time. Uh, wanted to be a musician, but nobody in Stephenville wanted to hear rock and roll. Let me tell you, they, they might listen to Johnny Cash back in the days. And Michael stayed to be with Susan, and he hated it. He had a bit of an attitude because, especially when he grew a beard, you know, he got picked on. People would call him fur face and stuff. And Michael did not look like anybody else in town. He wore a leather jacket, engineer boots, and he drove Harley. Michael was also not one to suffer any type of abuse. If you said something insulting to Michael, he would pop you in the mouth. He mm. was repeatedly in fights, rarely in a job. He worked at a Sonic. He worked in a cornfield. I mean, all sorts of jobs that just never really took. And after about a year or two of this, around 1980, he said, I can't take it anymore. I've got a job offer from an uncle. I think he ran an auto repair shop back in El Paso. Come with me to El Paso. Let's try to make a go up there. Susan had never been outside Stephenville, but she, she thought it sounded like a grand adventure, right? So they go to Stephenville, and for whatever reason, the job fell through. And within a matter of weeks, they are living in what Susan famously said in one of her letters home, on bacon bit sandwiches. Yeah. They're not quite living out of the car, as one report had it. Uh, but Michael said they were living in an apartment with no furniture when they couldn't Make that happen, they moved in with his mother, and that didn't go real well either, and they ended up coming back. So by, let's say, early 81, they're back in Stephenville. Michael continues to act out. I've got police reports of fights he got into. He was not happy there. He had family in Indianapolis, brother. And at least once, and it sounds like twice, he moved up to Indianapolis, and she came with him, and then Susan was just never happy away from Stephenville for whatever reason, maybe being far away from family or just small town Texas. It has its allure. She went up to Indianapolis, stayed with them a time or two and came back. And Michael says, you know, during their about roughly five years of marriage, he was gone about half the time. Hmm. By the summer of 86, they were uh, had moved into this little white bungalow uh, by downtown and they were trying to make a last go of it. As Michael tells it, the final straw was he had had some success flipping cars, buying a used car, fixing it up and reselling it. He wanted to do this with homes. Apparently, his brother was doing that in Indianapolis, and he thought he could do it too. Unfortunately, Michael had no money, and Susan, who was by now working at the sandpaper factory, didn't really want to invest her money in Michael's new venture. Michael accused her of emasculating him and taking away his only livelihood. And so he left. There's a series of letters between them. It was heartbreaking because, you know, they were 
not angry at each other. They loved each other. They both said they want to be with each other, but she couldn't live outside at Stephenville and Michael couldn't make it work in Stephenville. He came back one last time in February of 87. This would be now four months before her murder. And uh, it didn't take, and he didn't stay. There's a letter in the DA's files in which one of her coworkers said, basically, he gave her an ultimatum, me or Texas. She chose Texas. Did you get a sense that Michael was physically abusive, emotionally abusive? I talked extensively with Susan's three closest friends, her her best girlfriend, uh, the girlfriend's husband, and another young woman, who were the three people who went through all this with him. And they said, no, Michael was always kind to her. Uh, Did they have arguments? Yes, but no, nothing unpleasant until the end, until February 87. In February 87, when Michael came back for their final attempt at a rapprochement, he left, he took a bunch of her things. And the most important thing was he took their yellow Mustang. And so for the next four months after he left, she worked six days a week to try to raise money to get a new car. She was having to have friends take her to work. But when Michael left, he left behind two things. One, he left behind a series of folded up little paper notes that he put in cabinets, he put in shirt pockets, he put in her underwear drawer, and they were just all about what a C-word she was, what an awful person, how this was all her fault. Her parents hated him from the word go. Michael tells these stories of the father threatening with a gun and things like this. But even worse, Michael left behind a 30-minute cassette tape in which he excoriated Susan in the most unpleasant way for breaking up the marriage, for not allowing him to be a man. And at one point, Susan was so shaken, she called in the three friends, Roy, Cindy, her best friend, and Gloria, and said, I've got to go to work. Can y'all listen to this and just tell me if I'm crazy because this scares me. And they were all deeply shaken. And by that night, Roy Hayes, wonderful guy, still alive, came over, nailed all her her windows shut, Mm. gave her a gun, and Cindy, for about the next month, slept on her couch. Look, nobody knew Michael to be violent. The fights that he would get in always seemed to be some guy would insult him. It wasn't like Michael was out picking fights with people. So despite the fist fights he'd gotten in, nobody really thought of him as a violent guy. But the fact is they didn't want to find out if he had that in him. Was there contact between the two of them between February when this escalates and July when her father finds her dead? No physical contact. We believe that there might have been a phone call or two. I think Michael dimly remembers a phone call in the letter, but nothing really of significance. Once Michael left, she went to a divorce attorney and filed divorce papers. And so between February of 87, when he left, over the next three or four months, It was a pretty dark time for Susan initially. She's working six days a week trying to get a car. I mean, this is just basic stuff. She's 30 years old. She's never really lived on her own. She either lived with her parents or been with Michael off and on. And it's a tough time for her. She doesn't really have time to socialize. And then after about three months, say in the May timeframe, things begin to lighten. She realizes her life is probably not at risk from Michael. He hasn't showed up to kill her. She goes out one night with a group of work friends to the nearby town of Granbury. Stephenville was dry at the time and flirted with a bartender. And he started coming over a couple of three Friday nights, watched TV on the couch. On the fourth one, they had sex. And the next day or so, after a day, Susan calls up another girlfriend and said, oh my God, you've got to come down here. She was hysterical. And she came down and Susan had dark marks all over her neck. JC apparently had gotten a little carried away and given her a series of hickeys. And it's a measure of Susan's modesty Hmm. and Stephenville's modesty. She was 
paralyzed with fear going out in town and having people see this and think she was that type of girl. By the end of May, you know, she was able to get a new car. Roy and Cindy, who are, who are now married all these years later, 40, 35 years later, noticed that she was brightening a little. There came a night in late July when they said, hey, we're going, we're taking a, one of Cindy's young cousins over to a, a carnival in a nearby town called Heiko. Why don't you come on with us? It'd be good for you to get out. And so she went on over there and they didn't have much fun for whatever reason. So they came on back and Roy said, tell you what, I'll make it better. Let's all go to Dairy Queen. So they went to Dairy Queen. And Susan, who was demure, careful about her physical appearance, had a hot fudge sundae. And then she did something Cindy said she'd never seen her done in her entire life. And these kids had been best friends from like 12, 13. She had another hot fudge sundae and smiled. And Cindy doesn't remember the exact words, but it was very clear that she was turning a corner. She could see a path forward for herself and her life. And four nights later, she was found dead. So her father finds her submerged partially in this bathtub. She's been sexually assaulted. It's summer of 87. He calls the police, I have to assume. Is that the first thing that happens? He steps into the living room, calls him on the house phone, and then steps out into the yard, which is pitch dark. And pretty much the whole Stephenville police force shows up. You know, there was clearly pretty nasty struggle in the bedroom. The bedroom was topsy-turvy. The mattress was off the box springs. And the pillows were thrown everywhere and the bedding was thrown everywhere. And there was a electrical cord that it was laying across the bed with the, the plug-in on the floor. When they squatted down beside her and lifted her head, they saw a red ligature mark. It was suspected that perhaps the cord had been used on her. As they studied the crime scene, the one thing that stood out was there's no sign of forced entry in a house with a, you know, everything nailed shut. It looked from all angles as if Susan had invited her murderer, into the house. And on the living room table, there were six cigarette butts in an ashtray and an open can of Coke, suggesting that perhaps she had sat and had some cigarettes with whoever it was. But that was it. You know, they canvassed the neighborhood. They went up and down the street. Nobody had seen anything strange. It was Sunday night. It was a quiet Sunday night in Stephenville, Texas. So what happens next? The investigators, we would assume, would look at her inner circle first and find out she has an ex-husband. Funny thing happened the next morning. There was a lieutenant on the force who announced to the gathering the next morning in the police department that nobody else needed to work the case. He was going to take it on himself. And I talked with an officer who was in the room that day. I said, what was that about? He said, the guy just wanted to be a hero. He knew we don't have a lot of cases like that. And he was looking to move up. This guy's name was Ken Maltby, and I'm sure he was otherwise a terribly effective policeman. Early on, from all indications, Lieutenant Maltby focused on Michael Woods. The Atkins family, Susan's maiden name was Atkins, was absolutely, I mean, it was just obvious. Michael Woods has done this. I mean, she was living with the, the baddest guy in town, right? Obviously, hello. He somehow came back, and Maltby and a Texas Ranger went up to Indianapolis. Within 48 hours of the killing, they had reached out to Indianapolis PD to interview him. And they had there had been some interviewing, but he denied everything and didn't seem to want to be cooperative. They confronted him in his front yard and he declined to go back to Texas. And so Lieutenant Maltby and the Ranger came back to Texas. And about a month later, uh, Lieutenant Maltby was transferred onto a uh, narcotic squad to supervise their narcotic squad. And, you know, by the first week of October, and this is two and a half months after the killing, it's orphaned. There's nobody assigned to take this over. 
So what happened is one of the original officers, the guy who canvassed the bedroom, Donnie Hensley, said, well, I'll take it on in my spare time. And he went to look for Maltby's notes or to debrief, and he couldn't get Maltby to talk with him, and he couldn't find any notes. And Donnie said, I don't know what to tell you. I'd start over from scratch. And he pretty much did. For the next couple of months, you know, he does his best to widen the, the focus of the investigation. He discovers the bartender in Granbury. By the way, I didn't mention, they've got prints in the bathroom and on the Coke can. He goes and fingerprints and uh, gives a lie detector test to the bartender. He passes. He then brings in Roy Hayes, the best girlfriend's husband, the guy who nailed the, the windows shut. And Roy was a little iffy in the eyes of Stephenville because he played Dungeons and Dragons, <laughs> which back in those days carried the faint whiff of the satanic. Now, Roy is a big old boy, nice kid. Roy says, okay, I'll take your lie detector test. Sure. So they take him down to Waco to a ranger station for a lie detector test. Does that for about an hour, walks out. And Donnie says, you did it. You did not pass. And Roy's like, I did not. I didn't have anything to do with this. He said, these machines do not make a mistake, Roy. I know you did it. This is just the way it is. And about that moment, the door opens behind him. And the ranger who took the test comes out and says, congratulations, uh, Mr. Hayes, you passed. To this day, nobody knows what the mix-up was. At that point, Donnie Hensley doesn't have a bunch of suspects. And, you know, everybody in town is saying, Roy Hayes, what are you, nuts? Everybody knows. Everybody knows. It's Michael Woods. And so Donnie rededicates himself to hounding Michael Woods, who remains out of state, outside in Indianapolis. He shows his picture, picture of the, the yellow Mustang to every service station in the county. It rings no bells with anyone. Finally, he realizes he's got to take the case to Indianapolis. So he goes up there and the Indianapolis PD gives him a fancy surveillance van that actually has one of these like a submarine periscope out the top. So you can sit in the back of this van and after a week or two of surveilling, they see Michael and his brother set out a bunch of stuff for a garage sale. And they see some items that they believe they can argue were, were stolen from Susan, a figurine, a, a, you know, a fur coat, this type of thing. So they swoop in the next day with a with an arrest warrant and arrest them all because they found a roach, a marijuana roach, right? You know, it led to no charges, but it got them the one thing that Donnie didn't have, which was Michael's fingerprints. They needed Michael's fingerprints. Now, to this day, Michael will tell you he volunteered to give them the prints and anything else they wanted on the proviso that it be done in Indiana. He wasn't going, he didn't trust Texas cops. It was not, not going back to rural Texas where an entire town was convinced he was the murderer. He was just wasn't going. For whatever reason, the Texas police wouldn't go up there and do it with him. So they felt they had to go up and get the fingerprints, which they did. They came back. Donnie, on the flight back from Indianapolis with the fingerprints, he is filling out the extradition papers to bring Michael back. He's so sure that the prints will match. Now, of course, I've given away. They don't match. And Donnie's like, there's no way. Michael Woods did this. How is this happening? Pretty much by the summer of 88, by the time... Donnie came back from Indianapolis with those prints. The investigation was over. Hmm. What happens next? This case goes cold. Well, actually, what did happen was the family sued Michael Woods. Uh, he was the beneficiary on Susan's uh, life insurance. He was due something like $11,000, I think. They sued him, and Michael would not go back. A judge hit him with a judgment, finding him responsible for his death and saying that he, he had to pay, get this, $700,000. Anyway, it was never paid, obviously, mm. in part because Michael didn't come back anywhere near where they could serve him. And then the case was slowly forgotten, not by the family, not by our friends, Roy and Cindy, but by the rest of the town. Stephenville, it's important to note, just in terms of context, is not your classic 
conservative small town. It's actually a college town in the middle of a farm country. Tarleton State is there. And during those years following the murder during the 90s, it saw an influx of, of people, but nothing happened in Susan's case. Years went by. And finally, in 2005, 18 years later, Michael Woods kind of came to a breaking point. Michael never got over this. He wanted to be a musician and he tried to. His lawyer says, you can't leave this town. They'll get you. They'll get you if you leave Indianapolis. So he and his brother start doing Skinner and Charlie Daniels around town for $35 a pop. But even that became hard after the Indianapolis newspaper ran two articles saying that he was the focus of a murder investigation from Stephenville. Well, Michael tried to install home alarms. He tried to do this. He tried to do that. He didn't keep a lot of jobs. What he was good at was drinking and taking every drug that anybody ever handed him. And he slowly went to a spiral. He tried therapy. That didn't work. Finally, he says, by the early 2000s, after about 14 or 15 years, he tried to kill himself. He said he took three handfuls of, of tranquilizers. And in a, a rare bit of levity from Michael's side of the story, he said, all it did was put me to sleep for three days and I woke up still depressed. Hmm. In 2005, he was playing a birthday party, a friend's birthday party with his brother. And afterwards, it was just about the anniversary of Susan's death. And he walked out the backyard. He was crying. And the host, who was just an acquaintance, walked out and said, Michael, what's wrong? And he explained that it was the anniversary of his wife's death. And he can't go back to a grave or anything because the whole town thinks he did it. And this woman, whose name was Barbara Gary, who has the briefest of cameos in this, says, well, that's just awful. And she, she goes in the next morning and gets on her computer. And she fires off an email to the Stephenville police saying, I really wish you'd figure out this Fricotta case because this poor man is falling, uh, falling apart because you haven't solved and found the, the actual killer. What had happened by then was a new sergeant named Don Miller had taken over looking at a, a handful of cold cases that they had in Stephenville. And he knew that the fingerprints didn't match. Michael had never been told. He never understood what happened once they took his fingerprints. Don looked at that and said, this guy didn't do it. And I bet you, if I'm ever going to solve it, I need him to help me solve it. Don Miller calls and Michael says, I don't want to talk to you. Don says, I understand that, but I'm your only hope of ever ending this. And so Michael says, okay, what do you want? He says, I need to come up and there's this new thing called DNA and I need to come up and get some DNA from you. And if you didn't do it, Michael, I can clear you. You'll be able to get on with your life. What had they collected? Sperm samples, I'm assuming? Saliva? There was DNA off the Coke can. And cigarettes, right? Yeah. So they had done a good job. Yes. That's one thing you can point. They did a good job. And Don said, well, I want to come up there. And Michael said, yes. And then Michael said, no. Don had already gotten plane tickets. So he and his buddy just went on anyway. They get up there. And it's like January or February. You know, it's 25 degrees in Indianapolis. And they're wearing these tex lightweight Texas sports jackets. They're freezing when they finally found their way to a fairly modest home where Michael and his brother were living. And they get up there on the on the front porch and knock, knock, knock. And Michael actually opens the door. And Don says who he is. And Michael's like, I told you I'm not going to talk to you. Why are you here? Don just keeps talking. It's just a, a load of just, Michael, we need your DNA. This is your only hope. Blah, 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 blah. And after, I don't know, 10, 15 minutes, it's Michael's like, okay, fine take the DNA and get off the goddamn porch. And Don turns to his partner and says, okay, let's do the DNA. The problem was neither one of them had, had ever used DNA kit before. Mm. And the partner says, I don't really know how to do this. And Don says, are there instructions? So they read the instructions and took a cheek swab, sent it down to Ranger Station in Waco, and it came back clear. The DNA, the fingerprints didn't match, DNA didn't match, 
And Don was able to call Michael and say, Michael, you're cleared. And Michael began to cry and hung up. Great news for Michael, right? Not so great news for Don Miller. He now has no suspects. However, what he has that they didn't have in 1987 is the FBI now has a fingerprint database. Don wanted to go to take their fingerprint card to Washington. His chief said, uh-uh, I'm not paying for you to go to Washington. Then he found out that the Rangers had access to it. So he just took the fingerprints down to Austin and gave him, gave him the original card. And a few days later, he gets a call back and he said, you got, you know, you got a pen and pencil. And Don says, uh, sure. The fingerprints come back to Joseph Scott Hatley. Don writes the name down and Don asks the guy, who's that? And the guy says, I don't know, but it's from an armed robbery in Las Vegas, Nevada in 1988. This is three states away. If this Joseph Scott Hatley has any tie to Stephenville, he calls the DA and says, do we know a Joseph Scott Hatley? And the DA says, you bet we do. And then John says, what? He says, rape case in 88. He went for a grand jury and no billing. And he was long gone. Nobody knew who, who he was, but his mother and uh, I believe sister still lived in town. I wouldn't say a prominent, but they're a well-known Stephenville family. His late father had owned several businesses, including a Texaco station. Several of them had you know, worked, including his sister, had worked for the city. And so now Don realized, I have a suspect. What is no bill? No bill means that they took the case to a grand jury and the grand jury declined to indict. So what's the next step with Joseph Scott Hatley? What do we know about what he's doing when this is all happening? You know, he was, uh, everybody considered him just a normal kid, Beaver Cleaver, born in 1965. So he was four years younger than me. I grew up a few counties away. Was possessed of a burning anger inside him that he was never able to explain. He says that as early as the age of 10 or 11, he was planning a school, a Columbine-style school massacre. Hmm. You know, he developed thoughts of sexual and other types of violence. What really changed for him was when he was 12, 13, 14, he discovered two things that kind of became the great loves of his life. Beer, which soon became vodka. He became the type of drinker that at least on weekends, when he wasn't working, would start drinking vodka when he woke up in the morning and would still be drinking at night in pornography. Hmm. Uh, he had a, a stash of porn in uh, I talked to a couple of experts and just who just said this is really, really typical of somebody who who acts out sexual violence. You know, nobody really saw him as anything other than a pretty normal kid. By senior year of high school, Scott had lost some of his baby fat, at least learned how to talk to girls, and decided for a career he was going to go for the Air Force, a weapons specialist uh, at bases around Texas. And then upon high school graduation, he goes off to a, uh, an Air Force training base of some type uh, at Fort Lewis, I think it is, outside Denver. And what matters for our story is that it's there that he meets his first girl. She's a, a quiet, serious, dark-haired young woman that we never, we've never named. They both drank heavily. And Scott said it was love at first sight. Mm. And they were very young. They are very inexperienced. And on a, a whim, they got married. And their parents and their commanding officers were pretty horrified but they were married. She decides to join up full-time. He decides not to, uh, but they agree he'll follow her. So she gets assigned to the island, the Pacific Ocean island of Guam. And so he follows her out to Guam. And, you know, they, they're apart for, let's say, a couple of months. The moment they reunited, he realized the fire was, if not out, it was flickering. He says, 
There was a story in her eyes I couldn't read. He begins drinking even more heavily. The drinking turns to fights. She starts going out by herself. And the turning point comes one night when she came back after partying. She came back alone, and he had a very strong sense based on his read of the situation that she'd been unfaithful. And to him, it was as if his entire life had exploded, and she betrayed him in his mind. He had been raised very religious. The Hatleys were the type of family that debated Scripture at the dinner table. And so he starts praying that God take care of this, fix this for me. And after a period of time, God hasn't fixed it. So he said, well, if God's not going to help me, I'm going to reach out to Satan. Problem was, he didn't exactly know how to reach out to Satan. He remembers that from every movie he's ever seen, it seems to always involve a lot of candles. So he gets up every candle in the house and lights them all over the living room one night while his wife is out and prays to Satan that he will take his wife's life so that he will get her life insurance policy and he can go back to Texas. Well, that doesn't really much work. The praying to Satan seems to be pretty much a one-off thing. But I will say that in the manifesto, it's something he loops back to several times, wondering if the pact that he offered Satan, if that explained the things that he did later in life. Uh, so he calls his mom. His mom says, come on home. He does. They divorce. And, you know, barely, what, a couple of years after leaving home, Scott finds himself living with his parents, going back to work for his dad, driving the back roads around Stephenville, brooding in the brown pickup that his parents bought him for graduation, listening to his eight tracks of Motley Crue with no sense really of, of where he's going to go. And the, the one thing I can say, he tried to do two, he did two things that were kind of new. One, he started asking people, he wanted to reinvent himself, obviously. So he started asking people if they'd call him Joseph instead of Scott. I don't think anybody actually did that. And he invented what became his favorite drink, the thing that he would drink every evening and pretty much all day. He called it V-syrup. And it was vodka, cough syrup, and Pepsi, which he put in a 40-ounce foam Sonic cup. And if you're from Texas, we all know Sonic cups. And he would drink this morning, noon, and night. About his only social outlet was at his sister. Uh, Regina's home. She was married a, little, a few years older. They'd always been close. He would go over there and re most nights, certainly on the weekends, Regina would convene a group of people around the round table in her kitchen. They started calling themselves members of the round table. And it was Roy and it was Cindy and it was some other friends. And they would sit there and drink and play cards because that's pretty much all there was to do in Stephenville, Texas, 1988. And, you know, they all saw that he was drinking a lot, that he was in some distress, but they figured, you know, he'd grow out of it once his divorce went through. And that is basically the story of Scott Hatley until fateful night, the middle of July, 1988, when a new face appears at the round table in Regina's kitchen. Hmm. And it's Susan Woods who showed up for one night. And in his manifesto, Scott Hatley says that they engaged in some drunken flirting. Both Roy and Cindy were like, that's just crazy. He was high. He was just drunk. But that was enough. That was the hook, the flicker, the moment that ended Susan Woods' life. About a week or 10 days later, no doubt, after a long night driving around uh, in his brown pickup drinking his V-syrup, he shows up unannounced on Sunday night at Susan's home, and she lets him in. What happens with Don Miller next? He gets this hit on the fingerprint database, and Joseph Scott Hatley is just floating about right now, right? After the murder, he uh, he raped a girl. And after that, he had fled town thinking that he was going to be uh, arrested for the rape. And he went to Las Vegas and ended up uh, robbing a shoe store. And uh, they arrested him. He did about 120 days in a youth offender 
program. He kept thinking, well, they're going to come. Stephenville's going to come any moment and arrest me for the rape. And no doubt they're going to make now make the connection to the murder. They never did. He came back to Stephenville and the paranoia lived pretty close to the police station. He could see him coming out at 6 a.m. and 6 p.m. in the cruisers. He just thought it was a matter of time. So his older brother was a long distance truck driver and Scott moved to Nashville and became a truck driver. And apparently he did that for about five years, says he was pretty good at it. Unfortunately, as some truck drivers do, he started taking amphetamines and ran into another truck, lost that job, ended up as a supervisor in a grocery warehouse. You know, he started to build a life. The years went by since the murder, five, 10 years. He married, he had two kids. And around the early 2000s, he was doing well enough at his job that um, they offered him a transfer to be a supervisor. Apparently, this was a promotion to a, a warehouse in Round Rock, Texas, which is a, a suburb uh, north of Austin. By 2006, uh, when Don matched up the fingerprints, he was a supervisor down in Round Rock. You know, he worked nights and so, and he slept days. And that's what he was doing that day in June 2006 when uh, Don Miller asked the Round Rock police to bring him in for questioning. Is this an open and shut case for Don Miller? Yep. Does he confess? Well, you know, initially Don didn't, didn't know what to make of this about Joseph Scott Hadley. And he got the, the rape file from the DA and he's going through it. And I've looked at this report. It's like a four page single space report and down deep in the middle of it, the girl who he was raping and it lasted six to eight hours in a local park out on the edge of town. She ran from him at one point. He chased her and fell on top of her. And he says, you mind me or I'll kill you. And I've done it before. And when Don saw that, he realized that's the guy. So when Don shows up in Round Rock, he has no doubt that Joseph Scott Hatley is the guy. He gets DNA. He talks to him. Uh, Hatley is very blase. Oh, my dad sex with her. I don't know. And his Don told me. That's a red flag right there. If you're accused of murder, you're denying it up and down. You're not, you know, you're not being blase about it. So Hatley went home last that night. As he writes in his manifesto, he knew what was going to happen the next day. And this was his last time to make a run for it. He says, you know, was I stupid for going back in the next day? No, I was tired. He went back in the next day. There was a lot more questioning in that night. And when they let him go, he was out in an IHOP with his family of four. They'd stepped into the parking lot and everybody else got into a van. And he stood there and lit a cigar. And when he lit the cigar, the, co- the Round Rock cops came out and they arrested him on domestic abuse case uh, for his wife. But while he was being held on that, Don filed on him for the murder, brought him back to Stephenville. And, you know, it was at that moment that the town kind of had to come to grips with what had happened. You know, it was a different town than it had been. But, you know, when Don sat down with people like Susan's father and his friends, you know, they just didn't want to believe it. They're like, well, you're just wrong. It's Michael Woods. Why haven't you gotten Michael Woods? Well, it doesn't match. It was, it's the Joseph Scott Halley. We don't know jo- Joseph. Well, it's Sidney Hallmark's cousin. Well, he's a good boy. He didn't do it. But in the end... There was, as we say in the, in the article, there was no dramatic perp walk. There was no teary confessions. He cut a deal uh, for 30 years. Could have been longer, but Susan's family didn't want the attention of a trial. How old was he when all this happened in 2006? When he was arrested, he was 40. Okay. Went off to Huntsville, came down with bladder cancer, which went into remission. They let him out after, I want to say, 11 years. What? Yeah. He came out and went to a halfway house in Midland. He was servicing trucks. At the beginning of the pandemic, he was laid off and he went to live in an RV by his daughter outside Abilene and the cancer came back and, and he died and a fellow uh, bought the RV where he died. And as he was going through it, found all these pictures of Don and Susan and he found the manifesto and he gave it to Don. 
And Don ultimately got it to me. You know, this was not a new story. It had been on forensic files. But the manifesto, having the manifesto, I always have, I mean, I could actually now tell the full story. It only took me about three months to do it. I mean, it's a fairly small cast of characters, maybe eight people. And after I turned it into Texas Monthly, after a month or two after that, we started make, making it into a podcast. Do you believe everything in that manifesto? Do you think that this was really Joseph Scott Hatley on a page for you? I actually kind of believe he was being honest with himself. What I have a hard time believing is that a lot of the things that he was making excuses, you know, he, he was an unhappy kid. Maybe, maybe his mom was mean to him a time or two. And so suddenly he blames her for an unhappy childhood and nobody saw any of that. I did talk to one expert that said the facts of it don't matter. What matters is what he thought, what he believed. Yeah. So many people who do things like this are reacting to some type of childhood powerlessness. And for whatever reason, he clearly felt that I believe the booze. I believe, I believe the porn. I believe the, the stuff about the marriage and the set. Yeah. I believe, I believe most of this. I, I have to say running this behind all the people who were closest to him in life, you know, there was nothing to argue with factually. Yeah. Now, how honest is he being about his internal landscape? That is for a reader, or in this case, a listener to decide. But let's say we understood 60 or 70% of the facts before his manifesto. I think with the manifesto, you get up to about 98% of the facts. It completed what was already a compelling story for me. Did Joe Atkins and the Atkins family finally accept that Joseph Scott Hatley was the killer and not Michael Woods, the jerk ex-husband? I don't know. They've passed, but I'm told they, they reluctantly had to. Nobody ever came back and apologized to Michael Woods. Has he turned out to be okay since this has happened-ish? I've reported stuff around the world for the Wall Street Journal for Vanity Fair. I've, I've met my share of people who've been in POW camps and abuse and torture. And, you know, there, there is that sense when you're sitting in front of someone, Kate, that someone's been through a trauma. There was a sense with Michael that he'd been through a trauma. This was a guy who had a rough, rough life. And so I was, I wondered, how lucid is this guy going to be? And he was 100% lucid. He'd given it a lot of thought. You and I come from the same world of print. You write these stories and you have all these words where you're describing the victim, you're describing the killer, you're describing emotions. And you're trying to get that across to the reader. And now we're in this audio format where you don't have to do as much explaining. You can just hear it. You can hear the laughter and the joy. You can hear the sorrow in someone's voices. It's very, I think, liberating in a lot of ways. It is. There's no substitute for the immediacy of hearing that person's voice in your ear. And I got very, very lucky, Kate. I got very, very lucky. You know, on this show and all the shows I do, we talk a lot about the importance of focusing in on the victim. And I know that you have been able to do both. Who do we meet in the podcast who can illuminate Susan's character? Is it Roy and Cindy? Roy and Cindy are great because in their telling of, of Susan's life, it's not defined by what happened at the end. They prefer to remember the young woman who brought a smile to their face and their laughter and the joy that they have of sharing with you and bringing her back to life for people who would never know her is so infectious. And the producer at one point, the wonderful producer, Brian Standover, said, are you at all concerned that we're telling this fairly dark story? And these people are in hysterics, laughing about, you know, sneaking beer. I said, no, this can't be dirge and funereal. We must allow that. So I think they do the best job of illuminating the character of Susan and then Michael. 
he would tell you probably that she was the only one he ever loved. If you love historical true crime stories, check out the audio versions of my books, The Ghost Club, All That Is Wicked, and American Sherlock. This has been an Exactly Right production. Our senior producer is Alexis Amorosi. Our associate producer is Christina Chamberlain. This episode was mixed by John Bradley. Curtis Heath is our composer. Artwork by Nick Toga. Executive produced by Georgia Hardstark, Karen Kilgariff, and Danielle Kramer. Follow Wicked Words on Instagram and Facebook at Tenfold More Wicked and on Twitter at Tenfold More. And if you know of a historical crime that could use some attention from the crew at Tenfold More Wicked, email us at info at tenfoldmorewicked.com. We'll also take your suggestions for true crime authors for Wicked Words. Follow Tenfold More Wicked presents Wicked Words on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you like to listen so you don't miss an episode. If you like what you hear, rate and review the show.